Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joel Applebaum, the Chief Content Officer for Ermi and Captive.com. And on today's podcast, I'm stoked to have Jim DeWolf, the Chief Product Officer at Captive Resources, located in Itasca, Illinois, which is just outside of Bluffstreet, Chicago. Jim recently sat on a panel covering the unique benefits of group captive ownership at Ermi's Construction Risk Conference. And it was a very popular session held in Orlando. And since the conference was at capacity, we thought we'd have him back with us here today to discuss this topic solo with just you, me, and all you podcast listeners out there. So welcome, Jim. To begin with, I'm sure our listeners would love and appreciate learning a little bit more about you and your professional background. Let us know how you became involved in captive insurance and your role with Captive Resources, specializing in group captives. Sure. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate the opportunity. Been with Captive Resources for 22, going on my 23rd professional year. Started my career back in the Liberty Mutual Direct Ridership. Also walked through the brokerage side of the equation for about seven years and found the value proposition that Captive Resources was offering, obviously, many years ago. Very intriguing. My career has entailed developing a number of our different programs. I've started nine of our different captives, uh, have done different things with commutations and you know novations of getting rid of old policy years, and continue to work closely with our team to make sure that we bring value to our 6,000 plus members and 45 different member-owned captives. Awesome. Now I'm going to remind our listeners that we got a free captive glossary if they need to know what commutation and novations are. But <laughs> let's start with the basics. So let's level set for our listeners. Briefly, tell us what a group captive insurance company is and how it differs from other types of captives. Sure. When we describe what a captive is from a you know a group standpoint, we describe it as an insurance company that provides insurance to and a key factor is controlled by its owners. You will see that there are a number of different captives out there with single parents, which are your generally your Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 companies. You're starting to see those to pop up in smaller entities to utilize it for risks that are tough to be insured. You have rent-to-captives, which are facilities that are designed around renting a facility, so you truly don't have the ownership of the program. With captive resources, we've gone back to feeling that the word control is important. When somebody joins a group captive, they have control of a lot of the different aspects of how the captive is run. Most of that is being done through two board meetings a year where those individuals would get together. They take all of the information and they continue to form what their group captive looks like. The way our groups are set up is it's a one member, one vote approach. So it doesn't matter the size, the industry, or what they may be, they get the opportunity to participate in how they want their insurance company to look in the future. We have two different types of programs that are relative to this that are called heterogeneous and homogeneous, referencing your side there that'll explain those, but the heterogeneous being more of a very diversified program in a bunch of different industries. When we reference homogeneous, we are talking about specific industries, long-haul trucking, maybe staffing companies, construction. Obviously, when we went to Ermi, we've talked to a number of different construction opportunities. 
So again, the captive can be built on a broad spectrum of industry or a defined spectrum of industry, but it is ultimately in our world controlled by that group of owners. So what you covered a lot there, but did you cover member owner? Yeah, when we consider a member owner, we would consider that to be the company. So that individual who owns that company becomes the member owner of that group. So that member owner gets one vote. So if we have, and we have captives that are as large as 450 members down to 50 members, each one of those is a director at the board meeting and has a one member, one vote approach. So as the captive decides to make changes, whether it would be in how claims are handled, what types of coverages are allowed in the captive and things of that nature, that group of individual owners, those members per se, are the ones that make those decisions. Great, thanks for covering that, Jim, I appreciate it. Let's move further into a discussion of how group captives can help organizations. To begin with, we understand that group captives have faced some challenges in terms of level of coverage, maybe policy limits that they can offer their member owners, right? right. And would you help shed light on this aspect of group captives and how group captives have responded to the limits challenge? Sure, sure. Which when we talk about limits challenges, let's talk about the coverages that we generally see in our workers or our group type programs. Those coverages would be workers' compensation, auto liability, and general liability. So when you talk about additional limits, you're generally focusing on auto liability and general liability because those are the ones that have higher limits that individual companies may purchase. If you think about the normal primary insurance limit for auto liability and GL, it has been a million dollars per se for the last 30 plus years. If you look at that, one million in the early 90s would on a you know a CPI basis is predominantly about $2 million today. So what you started to see is that $1 million limit is not sufficiently covering the exposure of the individual members. You're also started to see in the umbrella carrier world, some carriers won't even look to put umbrella limits on top of only a million dollars of policy limit. So over the last few years, what we did is we took our groups and the purchasing power that we can put together for those groups and went to the marketplace and did some studies to make sure that we could see if we could use that purchasing power to increase those liability limits for auto and geo to 2 million. The way we do that is we're utilizing the economy of scale and the diversification of the groups. And what we believe is that if we can get the group to look at those levels, which many of our captives have, it offers them a long-term benefit of better price stability and predictability of that layer. The second thing that it does is it puts a situation in line that your limit to 2 million because of the way the captives are put together has some level of predictability because the group is purchasing it. So again, what we're trying to do is look at how do you use the purchasing power of a 50, 100, a 200, a 400 member captive to go ahead and purchase those limits at a much lower cost than they might be able to get as an individual member pursuing that limit in the marketplace? Cool. And just to make sure, other than the obvious benefit of having more limit coverage, right, are there additional benefits of increased policy limits? 
to the member companies? I mean, why did what are the exact benefits to the member companies of increased limits? So what you're seeing is is when we get into some different industries, construction, for example, some public entities and some different, I'll use contractual requirements, have started to come in and say, you need to have primary limits, which means your primary policy needs to have $2 million on auto liability or a $2 million for your general liability. So what we've also started to realize is some, again, contracts are coming out saying, we want that primary carrier to take more limits. I think that is related to how those coverages flow up through the umbrella carrier. And it also helps when there's higher limits there where you have one primary carrier managing maybe a difficult claim versus having multiple carriers like an umbrella carrier and a fronting carrier that could have different parties having to participate in the claim. We've started to investigate and we're working through trying to see, is there a way to build that to a $5 million primary layer? Because we are starting to see those contracts and again, public utilities and public entities coming back and saying, hey, we may want to press this limit up even further. So that's some of the benefits that you see is those higher limits and how it can respond to contractual obligations. Yeah, contractual obligations or in a claim, right? You know, working with yep. one carrier definitely is better than trying to coordinate claims coverage. <laughs> correct, correct. So, so that's great. I mean, I think that helps me understand what the benefits of increased policy limits are to member companies. But how? what are the additional benefits of increased policy limits to the captive overall? Help me understand that and, and our listeners. Sure. There's to the specific captive outside of a cost savings there really is no direct benefit to the group captive. Let's talk about how the group captive is structured. The group takes on an individual, or excuse me, a group retention. Most of the group captives we manage take a retention of anywhere from three to $500,000. What that means is that group is managing what those losses are in that particular layer of the first zero to 300 or zero to 500,000, for example. What we're doing is we're reinsuring away that catastrophic loss. So to the real benefit of the group per se is the driving down of what that cost would be, again, if they had to go and get it individually. We have some captives that have risen that retention layer, layer up to a million. And by adding these different layers and, and certain captives to two million or maybe five million, you likely will see the potential in the future where the group might be able to participate in that type of layer where they take a, a share of whatever those losses may be and say, we will fund for potential losses in those higher limits. And if we don't have losses in those higher limits, we retain that underwriting profit versus that those dollars just going directly to the reinsurer. So by increasing the limits, what we're going to do in the future is allow those groups to be able to take a calculated risk position on maybe participating in those higher levels. Great. I think that's good because what I heard you, you say, there's potentially get more stability in those higher layers, participate in those higher layers, and that could be the benefit, right? If you can control those costs and you can participate in it, you're not trading dollars, right? Correct. Correct. And the yeah. big thing being there is we've educated our member clients over the years of the farther away you become relying on insurance and take on those risks yourself, the more predictable, I think you said that very well, the more predictable and stable your costs can be in the future.
I think that's great insight, Jim. So we understand a common question that you are often asked is what options do group captives have available for closing open policy years and moving those off their balance sheet? And we'd love for you to shed some light on the options available to group captives. Sure. The one thing that you always see is when you're getting into a captive, one of the dynamics of that is you are putting in a certain amount of your premium to pay your losses. The question is, is how do I get that money out? How do I get those distributions returned to me? Or how do I you know, relieve myself of those liabilities? So in a group captive, there's a, a few things you can do. You can do nothing. You could sit back and just leave the policies open indefinitely. And the individuals in those groups would have specific liability to their claims in theory forever. You have the ability to do an external transaction, which is to sell the captive's liability back to the fronting carrier, the policy issuance carrier, or a third party. Referencing early on, that's where those commutations and novations come in. A commutation being, you know, again, that the carrier takes it, or a novation being that you sell it to a third party and get rid of those liabilities. The other option you have is you create what we've called an internal transaction that we call a tail fund. Tail liabilities differ depending on what industry you're in and what type of group you have put together. So those are your three kind of major transactions. We generally, in our groups, utilize what we call an internal tail fund. What that is, is the captive then maintains that liability and risk for that year all of the collateral obligations to the carrier. And ultimately what it is doing is it's releasing the individual from those future liabilities. So we've learned that if you can start a tail fund, it allows an individual member the ability to get their distributions back. It allows them the what I would call an exit strategy. If they ever decide they wanna leave the captive, how do I get my equity back? How do I get my security, all of my investment back? And what it also does is it buys us time and distance to get to an external transaction. So what we've seen over the last few years is we utilize that tail fund because the IBNR, the incurred but not reported reserves that an actuary is going to put out for any type of insurance company or group captive, the cost of that is a lot higher to sell until you get to eight, nine, 10 years out. So we utilize the internal tail fund to have a more structured approach to closing a policy year. It's a formulaic approach. So the individual members also understand how that closing works and the costs that are associated with it for them to release their individual liability and also to have an exit strategy. Sounds like some tough work for an actuary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. When you get big groups, that vary in premium size, there's definitely a lot of work that goes into making sure that those are done in a, an appropriate fashion. I think that was a big question too when your, your panel spoke at our construction risk conference. But I think our listeners are would be curious about the effect of having open policy years on a captive's books and why the captive would want to close policy years. So I just want to make sure we've covered the advantages of closing policy sure. years for the member companies and the captive. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about how you get into that IBNR discussion and some of the benefits. 
if we really think about insurance, it's all revolves around what is the life cycle of a claim, right? You have a date of injury, your injury is going to manifest. You're going to have additional adjustments, investigation, claims, litigation, claims development, things of that nature and close date. Every single claim you have differs. And the other thing when you think about a group captive is we diversify geographically. So our captives are not all specific to the state of, for example, California, which may have a different litigious approach than a state like Iowa. So it might. What, <laughs> it might. So what you start to see is when you get into those situations and you're very diversified as a group, it allows us to the same thing that we, we talked about with the excess limits. It allows us to really consolidate that IVNR that is probably ultimately going to be effectively net cost cheaper for the group of the membership than if they would have to go out and do it as an individual member. An example would be a $300,000 account. Most companies would not say, I will take your liabilities away from you if you, know, if you want to sell those without it being extremely aggressive. So by, again, taking the entire portfolio approach it allows the captive to get closer to being able to close. Now, the tail fund does not release it, the liabilities or take anything off the balance sheet. What the tail fund is doing is it's releasing the individual member. So it still hangs out there and the captive is still responsible to have collateral to the fronting carrier and still responsible to pay all of those respective claims as they develop. It's just not the individual member's responsibility. Where you get to releasing it from your books is when you get to the novation and commutation section of the life cycle of a claim. One of the things that also becomes beneficial is the larger the captive is, generally speaking, the more dollars you have, which allows you to have more people interested in buying those liabilities. Most people don't want to invest to take on liability if it's a small dollar amount. With a big captive and you're looking to sell liabilities two, three, four, five million dollars, the carrier is going to come in or a third party and say, that is a good investable approach for us. We can make a good return on investment. Let's go take that on. So the other thing about the way closing policy years works is the larger the dollar amount you have, generally the more people that are going to participate in wanting to buy those liabilities. So those are some of the different things that we see, but the life cycle of how it works, generally a tail fund starts at about the sixth year and you look to truly sell things off at the 10th, 11th, 12th year, depending on cost and industry. Great. Thank you. That was very informative, Jim. I really appreciate it. I guess I have one more question for you. The group captives that Captive Resources works with are wholly owned by the member insureds, right? Yep. But but during your recent presentation at the Construction Risk Conference in, in Orlando, you discussed share capital in the group captive model. So help our listeners understand how share ownership works. Okay. So basically, as you when you join a group captive, everybody is required to buy a share of stock in theory. That's that share capital you reference. It comes into the captive as an asset, basically an investment. And we take that share and we break it into two shares. One is a common share. One is a preferred share. So let me kind of give you a little background on what those shares represent. The common share is the voting share. 
as we talked about the member and we use the word director and having control and say at the board meeting, the common shareholder uh, retains all of those rights. The common shareholder also is responsible for all of the, I will call it insurance premiums, any security, any potential assessments that could come from from loss, his, loss exposure in the captive, those all are the responsibility of the common shareholder. Ultimately, that is the insured party. So you will see that is in the named insured. The other side of the equation is the preferred share, which ultimately has the rights to the dividend. So they have the ability to get the dividend sent back to them. They also are the ones that have the obligation to pay all of the appropriate income tax relative to those dividends. And the one thing that is required of a preferred shareholder is they meet the, quote, accreditor investors guidelines. So anybody who is an accredited investor could be a preferred shareholder. But the thing that is interesting here is the common share and the preferred share do not have to both be in the named insured. So a common share could be in the name of the company and the preferred share could be in the name of the owner, the owner's children, a trust. It can be in a number of different ways not to avoid tax. They will still pay the appropriate tax, but to be able to have that dividend brought back to those individuals as a way to maybe minimize a tax. But again, to be crystal clear, everybody that gets a distribution of earnings and profits from the captive will pay a tax. We ultimately, in those situations, there's multiple tax documents. I won't get into specifics, but they're called 5471s, 8938s. I could throw out a bunch of different numbers, but the point being, when those distributions are sent back to that preferred shareholder, all of the appropriate documentation is filed with the U.S. tax entities to make sure appropriate tax or at least appropriate documentation has been supplied of what earnings have been distributed by those captives. So what we see is you have the ability in some of these things to maybe take some of the ownership of the company or the distribution of the company and have those dividends flow back to a different, uh, I'll call it individual. So that's one of the benefits of it. But again, we are domiciled on the Cayman Islands. We all know the joke of the, the movie, The Firm, and everybody thinks that it's just handing out briefcases. It's a very structured approach and a very highly regulated island in relationship to how those distributions are sent back to the members. Awesome. I love that book, The Firm. I actually named my son <laughs> Mitch for that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Awesome. So anyway, that, that was very interesting. And I just want to say we, we are out of time, but if our listeners want to learn more, you have all the information on captive resources to how to contact you on captive.com. I hope our listeners enjoyed this. If you did, like it, share it. We appreciate all of your efforts. And Jim, I want to thank you for being our podcast guest today. I appreciate it, Joel. And thank you for the opportunity to share our story with you.